a vision for how to get and stay sober. Wilson knew that sooner or later he would have to face the challenge of creating a chapter that outlined in the clearest possible terms the actions needed to get and then stay sober. It was, he later commented, a problem that, quote, had secretly worried the life out of him for months before he finally got around to writing it. But so long as there was even one other chapter still to be written, Bill would elect to work on that rather than face the intimidating task of trying to put down on paper the exact details of their program of recovery. Welcome to another Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at addiction, mental health, and 12-step life. Now, with less dogma and more bite. This is episode 49. Not a lot of rambling from me. I'm going to bring you right back to that kitchen table discussion with Bill Shaber, Lisa, Sarah, Bill, and I sitting around the table talking about writing the big book, The Creation of AA, Bill's detective work, searching for clues in archives, and how the evidence reveals challenges to popular beliefs about early AA. Advisory warning on the topic of the book Alcoholics Anonymous and the author Bill Wilson, some listeners have a deep feeling on the subject, ranging from adoration to hostility. Yes, hello to the rest of everybody somewhere in the middle, but those on the edge will or may have uh, feelings that uh, William Shaber doesn't go far enough or goes too far. If we can agree that the truth will set us free, this hour won't promise the whole truth. None of us were there, but uh, 11 years of work, uh, I've read the book, and my own experience is it has informed my impressions of AA and um, sort of challenged some of the stories I'd heard about. The early days of AA and indeed all mutual aid history. So, from a beautiful October day in Connecticut, 2019, here we go. I'm Bill Shaber. I'm the author of a new book called Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. And we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. There's five key things I want to talk about that everybody else is going to want to know about too. But I, I want to know... What was your intention? And then I'm also going to ask you about like unintended consequences of your own personal experience of going through this. So, so why did you undertake this process in the first place? Well, I'm a rare book dealer, and I bought a copy of the Multilith printing of the big book, which was done two months before the book was actually published. And uh, when I went to find out how many copies have been printed? I needed to know the rarity of what I held in my hands. Mm -hmm. I got mixed information. Some people said 100 copies. Some people said 200, 300. Bill Wilson frequently said 400 copies. So I applied to do some research in the GSO archive, the General Service Office archive of Alcoholics Anonymous in New York City. And what I was looking for was the uh, invoice. And in one of the reports of 1940, they say it cost $165 to print this particular Multilith copy, and I wanted to find the invoice that would tell me how many copies they printed. Never found the invoice. It's, there's, it's not to be found in Stepping Stones or in the GSO archives. But once I got in there and I started looking at the backstory and, and I was backing into documents that were 
1939 and then earlier 1939 and then 1938. And the next thing you know, I was tripping over documents that contradicted the stories that have been told for decades in Alcoholics Anonymous based mainly on Bill Wilson's original recounting of early AA history. And uh, I was just fascinated by the fact that uh, the documents didn't really stack up with the stories that well on many, many, many cases. So I just kept going and uh, ended up with a book that focuses on just a, an 18-month period. Now, it, it turned out to be a very big book. Uh, I thought it was going to be 250 pages. It turned out to be 600 pages of text. But that was because there was so much raw data in, in the documentation that was available in primary documents that I just, I just couldn't drive by some of that stuff. And I had, to, I had to just keep working it and working it and working it. I mean, how could I not give you the details of Bill Wilson's trip down to Virginia and, and Maryland uh, in August of 1938 when he was trying to get, he finally gets these psychiatrists from uh, Johns Hopkins to sign off on it, you know? Mm -hmm. So what's that got to do with the writing of the book? My wife would say to me, and I'd say, <laughs> well, it, it's not directly related, but, but, but it, it, it influences everything that happens afterwards. So we need to know about that. We need to know the details on that, and we need to be reporting those details because it's a great story. So I did that. Now, what were the unintended consequences? Was there a innocence lost moment for you where you passed the point of no return where you were a changed man? I don't think so. I was just fascinated by... I, I'm a historian at heart. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's, I mean, it's not the first time I've done this. I wrote a book on Nietzsche's publication history that the University of Chicago Press published in mm -hmm. 1995. And uh, th we had similar problems there in the sense that uh, when uh, Nietzsche w went insane, he was taken over basically by his, his wicked sister, who was mm -hmm. a pathological liar, and she made up all kinds of bad information that got into the records and got passed along. So it was the same sort of thing. I had to go back into the original documents and find out exactly what was going on, as opposed to the stories that had been told for decades and decades after Nietzsche died. Same thing here with the AA story. It was just a revelation and a comfort to me to know the real story, or as close to the real story as you could possibly get, which mm -hmm. is, the, you know, that's the historian's... Uh, ever elusive quest is what really happened you right. know i'm not really sure what really happened but i've got a better idea of what really happened having done all that research so er ernie kurtz had the experience of not really liking bill wilson and then learning more about him and go wow this this is a this is someone i admire and i'm sure other people have had hero worship and then the information tarnished uh, you know, someone fell off a pedestal, but, but you had a pretty realistic idea of the subject matters you were uh, taking a deep dive on before you started it? You're probably right. It's, it's, it's hard to go back <clears throat> and reconstruct that. But yeah, in the beginning, when you start finding out that the stories Bill told just weren't true in some sense, uh, and in many cases, uh, so was the guy a liar? I mean, what am I doing? You know, you know being involved with this this project with this guy who's a liar mm -hmm. and I actually had a couple of people who came at me from that direction but it wasn't too long before I realized that Bill Wilson was a man of vision 
I, Bill Wilson wasn't a historian. He didn't. He wasn't trying to be a historian. Bill mm-hmm. Wilson. Bill Wilson had a, a, a project and a, and, and a solution to alcoholism that he thought could save hundreds of thousands of lives, and that's what he was trying to do. So he was telling stories that left out all the messy details. He was telling stories that were much closer to parables than they were to anything like a historical account, and frequently slipped over into myth, went right past parable into myth. But the stories were supposed to be powerful, incisive, and impressionable stories for people who were trying to get sober, uh, or who hadn't been convinced yet that they should try to get sober, or that this would work as a, as a, as a way for them to get sober. So I quickly realized that Wilson... He wasn't a liar. He was just—he was just—he was a salesman trying to sell uh, a solution for a, a problem that had ravaged the nations for centuries. Trying to help drunks, trying to make a buck. Yeah, <laughs> you can't fault a person for either of those things. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Ernie Kurtz and myth, uh, in experiencing spirituality, which he did with uh, Catherine Ketchum, he describes a myth as something that never happened because it's always happening and in a way that is sort of the AA story too isn't it right yeah yeah I mean the the story is true but the details are definitely suspect at best I certainly fall prey to finding fault like there's a reward for it but I mean that's that's kind of infantile (laughs) when there's a greater truth that to be found. Sure. Right? A, a myth really captures the essence. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about details. We're talking yeah. about the essence. Yeah. So, for instance, Bill tells a story in his writing of Bill's story, which is the first chapter in the book of Ern, of uh, Ebby Thatcher coming by, mm-hmm. and, and they sit down. You know, Ebby calls, and Bill answers the phone, and and uh, they sit down, and they talk one-on-one across the table, and Ebby says, I got religion. Bill's drinking. Ebby's not. Ebby leaves. Bill says, I don't know what it is you got, kid, but I need some of that. Ebby tells the story. It's radically, radically, radically different. He calls days ahead. He talks to Lois. Lois, they make a date. He comes over for dinner. He comes over. Nobody's there. Somebody lets him in the house, and uh, they wait for everybody to come. Uh, It's not just Bill and Ebby. It's Bill and Ebby and Lois. Oh, and the woman who lives up on the fourth or fifth floor that they've rented out in the brownstone. She comes down and joins them for dinner. They have a nice, quiet dinner. They go upstairs to the parlor on the second floor, and Lois says to Ebby, so why don't you tell us what's going on, Ebby? And Ebby launches, finally, into his story of getting sober and uh, and the religion that he's found to do that with. And, uh, and then he leaves, and Bill walks him to the subway, drunk, right. throws his arm around him and says, I don't know what it is you got, kid, but I surely would like to get a piece of that. Um, Bill Wilson told the story he told because the mythological essence of that meeting was that the message of recovery can best and perhaps only be delivered effectively when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic. So Lois and the girl upstairs and dinner and all that stuff had to go from the story. I I, I can't fault Wilson for that at all. It's a historical fiction. Amen. You're trying to tell a story that's going to be interesting to people. Not bore them to tears like a documentary would, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that seems to be what he does. Now, there were some co-conspirators to some of the myths. Uh, Lois, Jim Burwell. Do you have a sense of why they, they sort of, well, let's just get behind whatever 
version of the truth uh, Bill Wilson is promoting at one particular time or another? Well, certainly, Lois, the story she told parroted Bill's stories. Very, very rarely does her version of the story drift away from Bill's version of yeah. the story. And uh, Jimmy Burwell, of course, not only backed up a bunch of Bill's stories, but told a bunch of really off uh, off the mark historical stories himself. He's mm -hmm. just a terrible, terrible reporter of any kind of facts. Mm -hmm. And the people in, quite frankly, the people in Ohio told stories afterwards about things that never happened, about how deeply they delved into the the, the chapters that were submitted to them and how they argued about mm -hmm. them. You know, it never happened. Yeah. What happened was that this project that people were so questionable about and sometimes just in open rebellion against, they did not want to have anything to do with it, became very successful. Now it's very successful. It's five years later. It's 10 years later. It's 20 years later. And we're not telling stories about how we were resistant to this thing, how we opposed this thing. Mm -hmm. We're telling stories about how we were on board from the very beginning. And boy, we were involved with it from the very beginning. And it's just the way that the stories told later are meant to reflect the present reality, let's say the yeah. 1950 reality, mm -hmm. when they're telling 1930 stories, they tell them in a way that, that supports the 1950 reality, the 1960 reality, and farther out. It, it's a perfect, perfectly understandable human tendency. It, it's an absolute human tendency. It's how, uh, you know, your ally in one generation can be your foe in another generation. You just retell the story you have in your head about their construct versus your construct. We do it all the time, right? But I'm, I'm not... Our love for alcohol and our resistance to alcohol. You hear people talk about their drinking days with, you know, uh, such condemnation. I wouldn't trade my best day uh, drunk for my worst day sober. That can't be true. <laughs> but they've rewritten the history, right? Sure. Yeah. And it's a good story. Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. It's... it's it's the stories that we tell ourselves that keep us sober. Yeah. So that's good. Wilson was the ultimate pragmatist. He yeah. was interested. He wasn't a dogma guy. He wasn't a, a this is the way it is kind of guy. He was like, what's working here? Mm -hmm. And if it works, he was all for it. So there's the uh, sort of co-founders myth, which we'll talk a little bit about. People assume the book was written in a chronological order. So there's like the history of the 12 steps myth, which I, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on a little bit. But what was the order of the chapters? How did the big book come to be chronologically? Well, in the beginning, there were just two chapters. There were two chapters originally written in late May and early June of 1938. And those chapters were written primarily not to not to like get the book project started or to get it off the ground or like they had any serious commitment to actually writing a book. Parkhurst and Bill were trying to Hank Parkhurst, Bill's right hand man in New York City, they were trying to raise money. And Parkhurst convinced Wilson that if they had two chapters of the book that they could give to these people they were trying to get to give them money, that that would be the best way to to, uh, to introduce themselves to people and to get appointments with people who would really be willing to take the checkbook out. So uh, Bill wrote, uh, There is a Solution, and Bill's Story, and they were, they, were, they were sent out in that order. Now, today it appears the other way around. Bill's Story comes before There is a Solution. But in the original format, it was There is a Solution and Bill's Story. Those stories, especially There is a Solution, was, was 
was like 50% larger than what appeared in the book finally in April of 1939 when they were circulating it. Mm -hmm. And I find those changes fascinating. But they circulated those two chapters for months. June, July, August, September, nothing. They didn't get any money. And so Parkhurst comes up with this idea again. He, uh, they've got a writer, a drunk writer. He keeps slipping and sliding, but they got him sober at the moment. <clears throat> and he's working for one of these magazines that comes out in a Sunday supplement all mm -hmm. around the country. Millions of copies. This Week magazine. And, uh, and he convinces uh, Silas Bent, uh, who has a connection there, to submit a story about Alcoholics Anonymous that's going to appear in this thing. They're going to say at the very bottom of it, that if you'll send us a dollar, we'll send you five chapters. Hank thought they needed five chapters to actually make the buck worthwhile at that point. So he goes back to Wilson and says, you know, the two chapters don't cut it. I need more stuff. Mm -hmm. So Wilson started writing on September 15th of 1938. And once he started that, then he kept that project rolling from then on until the end of that, that year. The, 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 uh, the manuscript was actually given to... Uh, the editor, Tom Usel, uh, either on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, 38-39. So in his second sit-down, he wrote uh, We Agnostics and... Um, more, about more About Alcoholism. Those were the first two chapters he wrote after that. Right. And then, uh, w what's interesting to people is he didn't go into chapter 5 and chapter 6. Well, he didn't have 12 steps yet. He didn't have to. Exactly. So, so what came next was a vision for you? Well, I think the next thing was probably working with others. Okay, working with and, others. And, and, and then there was, a, there was a, it's a little confusing on how they come out, but, but I, I think the next thing was uh, the family, I'm sorry, to wives and the family afterwards, and, and then a vision for you. Yeah. In uh, somewhere in there, Hank Parkhurst wrote to employers. Right, yeah. So all of those chapters were basically done by December 1st, 1938, mm -hmm. but there was no 12 steps and no chapters 5 and 6, which you couldn't, couldn't write until you had the 12 steps. Right. And so that leads us to the story of how the 12 steps came to be uh, wasn't requested or asked or sought until a long time after, and there's different versions of how the 12 steps came to be, the 6-step or 4-step story. Uh, there's a story on the train, right? There's the inspiration with the yellow pad. and so, so can you tell us about where some of these stories came from? And when they come up against the facts you have, they, they just don't make sense anymore. You know, that chapter on writing the 12 steps, I think it's chapter 23, was the hardest chapter for me to write in the book. And it just took me months and months and months and I was constantly coming back with things that I had learned and things that I was thinking about how to make sense out of these contradictory stories that I was hearing. Mm -hmm. And I would come over and talk to my wife, the lady Sarah here, and say, this is not making any sense to me. You know, how can I, can, how can I reconcile these things? Um, but finally, things fell into place in a way that, that, that did make sense to me and I think tells a credible story about the 12 Steps and the genesis and where they came from. So I started out the first time I was just gonna I was just gonna bang that chapter out. Bill, I mean, Bill tells the story all the time. He goes upstairs, he's got one of his imaginary ulcers, he realizes he has to write something really kind of concrete. He always talks about something that the that the drunks can't wiggle out of, you know. He laid down on the bed with the yellow yellow pad and he 
pencil and wrote out the steps and then numbered them and they came out to 12 and he thought that was the coolest thing in the world and he went downstairs with them and there was two guys down there having coffee with Lois and they, they, uh, they gave him all kinds of grief, you know, that uh, God used to be at the bottom and now he's at the top and there's all this stuff. He got drunks getting down on your knees in the original version of yeah. uh, Step 7. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that was the story. But when I started looking at it, it just didn't make, a lot of things didn't make sense. Bill, most especially Bill said he did that based on the six steps, that they had this word of mouth six steps and he articulates what the six steps are. And when did he first start telling that story about the six steps? 1950, 11 years after the book was published. Right. It's the first instance I can find of him telling that story. And, and, and the version of the story is just, it, it, it morphs and it changes uh, in those early years, 1950, 1951. Uh, there's one version where uh, he talks about Ebby actually told him the six steps. And then there's other stories that he tells later, and he got, got onto board with this, and this is the story he told later, was that the six steps came out of their collective group experience. That's what they were doing. It was, it was the pragmatic answer, the six-step pragmatic answer to how do you stop drinking. But here's the problem. There's no evidence of six steps before December 1939. There's just none. And, and, and I, I, I thought hard and long about that, and I started looking back into the record. For instance, there's, I think, 26 stories in the back of the first edition, first printing of the big book. And they're written 28. by... 28. 28? Yeah, and written, one Al-Anon. Right, yeah. and, and written by, you know, people from Ohio and New York. Now, you would think if there was a six-step program, people would be talking about, somebody would be talking about, most of those people would be talking about those six steps or bits and pieces of those six steps. Read the, read the 28 stories. Yep. O for 28. O for 28. <laughs> o for 28. They talk about coming to a realization that God can help them stop drinking. And they make that surrender of their life and their will to God, and they stop drinking. That's really what is the common element that goes through all of those stories. If there was no six steps, oh, and there's the Frank Amos report from February of 1938 when he goes out to Ohio and he sends back, uh, he writes up a report, and there's these seven things he says that you know you need now, you need to do Frank, to stay sober. Just for for context, he's with the Rockefellers. Yeah, he's one of the Rockefeller guys. They had had Wilson and Bob Smith and uh, and I think six other people met with four Rockefeller guys in December of 1937. Yeah. And they thought they were in the money, man. They just, they, I mean, they knock it out of the ballpark. But the Rockefeller guys send Frank Amos, one of the four, mm -hmm. out to Ohio to check up on this Bob Smith and what's really going on out there. And when mm -hmm. he gets out there, he gets wined and dined. Well, he doesn't get wined, but he gets dined. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and he comes home and he writes a report, and he mentions seven things that they're doing out there to stay sober. And again, it's not, those things don't correspond to the six steps that Wilson is claiming. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, now I'm really up against a, a brick wall of, of, of a story that, that I, in my estimation, I can't find any substance, any substance for whatsoever. So what's going on? One of the great reveals I had when I was, when I was in the archive was the first time they gave me uh, Bill's story, the mm -hmm. copy of Bill's story that was written in late May of 1938, the first version, if you will, yeah. of that particular now, he had written a couple of versions before that that were really, really terrible. But this was the one that, <laughs> that over time morphed into what appeared in the book. And it was very close to that. 
And if you go through Bill's story when he's recounting what happened to him in the hospital, you can, you can number like 10 of those 12 steps. I, you know, it's just... just and what, which version of Bill's story is this? This is the version that he wrote in May of 1938. I'm, I'm in the archive. I've got this story in front of me and I'm reading it. I know that Wilson supposedly wrote the steps. Everybody says he wrote the steps in December of 1938. I'm writing a story that was written months and months earlier. Mm-hmm. And there's the story. Mm-hmm. There's the steps right there. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, they're experiences, not explanations, right? No, but you put numbers on them, and you get like 10 of them. Mm -hmm. It was just exactly right there. So was the 12 steps that Bill sat down and sketched out, was that some elaboration on the six steps? No, we can't find the six steps. And quite frankly, if you look at the six steps he talked about and the 12 steps he ended up with, there's, there's just like a ton of brand new material in the 12 steps that is not in those... I don't know what else to call them, but bogus six steps. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the 12 steps and look at the story he wrote in May of 1938, almost everything's right there. So what are we doing here? We're not not working off some six steps that Ebby brought to him or that they formulated through trial and error over the time. What we're doing here is we're taking the 12 steps out of Bill Wilson's experience. What did I do? How did I get sober? Mm -hmm. Bingo, there it is. Now you mentioned the... The train ride. And the train ride is, is like Bill Wilson started telling stories about the six steps. And, and write, the first time he talked about writing 12 steps was in 1950 that I can find. But in 1948, he's uh, on a train uh, going down to Washington, D.C. Um, with a, an AA guy and uh, a lawyer. And the guy asked him to tell him, you know, nobody's told, the guy said, nobody's told me where the 12 steps, how do you write the 12 steps? And Bill tells his story. Mm-hmm. This guy goes back. He types up a version of what Bill had told him and sends two copies to Bill Wilson. There's a copy in the GSO archive. And, and he says, Bill, uh, this is the story that you told us and that you and I have kind of talked about on the phone. So I'd like you to sign off on that and send me back a copy saying, yeah, that's where the 12 steps came from. And in that particular version, Bill Wilson basically says, yeah, it was based on my experience of getting sober. I mean, there are more details in the book about exactly what happened on that trip and exactly what was said. I've actually got the letter printed out in full. So here he is two years before he comes up with this six-story scenario, a six-step scenario. He's saying it came out of his own experience. So again, um, like we haven't really talked about how he he really tried to describe Dr. Bob as like the co-founder and the co-author and the authorial we, you know, these are the steps we took, which it was really just him telling his story is my personal experience. So the whole, this is what we did, this is what we did, was really him, the 12 steps was really his his experience. I went through this. I was faced with this existential question about what I had to look at my past. I had to make amends. I certainly think that's where it came from. And, and the documentation, the, the raw documentation, clearly seems to support that. I mean, really, it does support that, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Again, it's perfectly understandable. What Bill Wilson's going to say, you can get sober the same way I got sober. That's one message, right? That's yeah. one selling job, right? Yeah. Or you can get sober the way a hundred of us got sober doing this. Yeah. This is what we did. And when we did this, we got sober. And you can too. That's a much, much more powerful message. It's a much more powerful sell then this is what I did. And a bunch of other guys tried it and they got sober too. So you just do what I did. 
Well, we know that story is alive and well in big book uh, meetings today. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. The hundred men yeah, yeah, who right. argued over the book, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, at times word by word, blood on the floor yeah. for the arguments, yeah. didn't happen in AA meetings. It did, in fact, happen out in Hank Parkhurst's office in Honor Dealers when Hank and Fitz Mayo and Bill Wilson argued over what was going to go in that book and how it was going to be packaged. There, were, there was blood on the floor arguments out there, but they, it didn't occur. Nothing basically happened in the Akron meetings, and very, very little happened in the New York meetings. It happened in this New Jersey office. Between now, three guys. Yeah, let's sort of move into sort of unsung heroes. Uh, AA, I'm critical of the fact that we don't honor those who fell off the path as for their uh, vital contribution. Uh, I mean, many times Bill tried to refer to Ebby as his sponsor, which was, you know, generous. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, uh, and Hank... Hank's story didn't end well, so he can't be credited as Bill's right-hand man. But, like, who was the motivating force behind writing the big book? It wasn't Bill Wilson. It was Hank Parkhurst. Yeah. You know, I'm almost famous at this point by saying, no Hank, no book. Yeah. And, and that's absolutely the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the whole, you know, the whole co-founder thing is another one of those elements in what drove Bill to not be historically accurate. He was, and still is, worshipped as a guy who, like, almost walks on water. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he had ego problems. He knew he had ego problems, and he really struggled with that and really tried to do things about it. And one of the things he did to cope with that was to take the spotlight off himself as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So that led to this whole co-founder thing, for instance. You yeah. know, but I'm not the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a co-founder. That's what I am. And Dr. Bob is a co-founder. And Sam Shoemaker is a co-founder. And William James is a co-founder. And Sister Ignatia is a co-founder. And Frank Amos claimed he was a co-founder. And, you know, Henrietta Cyberlink certainly thought she was a co-founder. But uh, the fact of the matter, Will, is that uh, Bill Wilson was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, 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 knowing what I know about how AA came together, I'm almost offended by that co-founder stuff when it comes up. Mm-hmm. Bill Wilson founded AA. Mel Barger, a really good AA historian, came into uh, AA early in 1950, the 1950s, and I heard a great recording of him uh, uh, that David Lester put together an interview where he said, uh, when I came into AA, we used to talk about we, Bill Wilson was the founder and Dr. Bob was the co-founder. Right. So they were, they were acknowledging Wilson's primacy. He was the founder, you know, yeah. and then we had guys who were co-founders, you know. Of course, over the years, it's morphed into uh, something completely different. Bob Smith isn't mentioned as a co-founder until 1945 or 1946. I think maybe it was 46 was the first time, first reference I could find anybody actually calling Bob and Bill co-founders. Right. So again, it was this revisionist history. Sure. They're trying to sort of... I mean, if Ebby Thatcher, who originally brought the message to Bill Wilson and made... I mean, it's the seminal moment in in, in AA history, Ebby talking to Bill. Mm -hmm. If Ebby's not a co-founder, who is? Right. Uh, And if Hank Parkhurst isn't a co-founder, who is? You know? But... Bob Smith became the first co-founder because he was the last man standing sober. 
Yeah, out of those early out, guys. Out of, out of those early And he guys, was, yeah. Bob Smith did a, I mean, he could get people sober. He was an amazing, amazing what they call 12-stepper yeah. today. Yeah. I mean, he, there was like 60 people sober in Akron, if the 100 number's right, which yeah, I don't think. But, 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 but it breaks down <laughs> about 60% of the people were sober in Akron and yeah. 40% in New York. And some people say it's 70-30, and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm probably okay with that. Because yeah. Bob was wildly successful convincing people to stop drinking using what was basically an Oxford group program. Right, and, and, while he had access as a doctor, right? Yeah. And, um, credibility on credibility that level also. as well, yeah. And he was, again, proving Wilson's point, it was one drunk talking to another drunk, yeah. delivering the message. It wasn't a doctor delivering the message. It was, well, there was sauerkraut and some other concoctions. Yeah, 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 and tomato, tomato juice. juice. <laughs> <laughs> Old hangover remedy. The, the co-founder thing, really there was um, a man... And he had a message, and later the membership made that like a mission, and it became a monument, right, like our collective history. And the problem with that train, the M train, is it always ends with a mausoleum or a museum. You know, when you reify something and, and hold it as orthodoxy, AA runs the risk of being like the Amish, you know, sort of cute, uh, not threatening, and uh, irrelevant to what's going on, right? And the truth will set you free, I think. Sort of, well, let's go back and look at this story and see what's true and what's not. Would you say plays a role in preserving the fluidness of AA or the elasticity of it? I'm certainly hoping the book is going to start a moving more in that direction because there's fundamentalists seem to be driving the bus these days and and I think that's really unfortunate Wilson in in, uh, in a letter um, written just before the the 12 and 12 was written complained about the book being frozen he used the word mm -hmm. frozen yeah and uh and he, and he said, and I'm, but I'm, I'm writing another book. Yeah. That's, I can't. Yeah. They won't let me change any of that yeah. stuff. But I'm writing another book. And then a few years after the twelve and twelve came out, he wrote another letter in response to some guy who asked him a question, and he claimed that book was frozen. And he really complained about the fact mm -hmm. that 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 the that the message of Alcoholics Anonymous had been frozen. And and he literally said that if he tried to change one word of the twelve steps, he knew he would be excommunicated from Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. So I think the story told here begins to put things in perspective of, of how much the book is a product of 1938-1939 thinking, 1938-1939 uh, American culture, 1938-1939 religious environment. Mm -hmm. uh, all of those things are there, uh, most prominently in the chapter to wives. It, it, could, it, could it be any more stark than in the chapter to wives, yeah. how uh, how how dated what's going on in that book is. Uh, I was asked uh, recently in an interview if Bill Wilson was alive today, uh, do you think he'd be in favor of uh, changing the book? 
<laughs> and I had to laugh. I mean, you know, you know he was trying to change the book in 1950 and he couldn't change the book, you know? Yeah, yeah. Bill Wilson would be looking for a complete rewrite of that book. Mm -hmm. He would be. Any, mm -hmm. any, quite frankly, in my opinion, any sane person would be in favor of a complete rewrite of that yeah. book so that, for instance, women coming into Alcoholics Anonymous weren't struck in the face by, by, by the, quite frankly, almost vile things that are said and presented in the chapter to mm -hmm. wives. Completely unacceptable. Completely. Uh, Hank Parkhurst in two, in two Employers talks about a business environment that was gone by the end of the 1960s. I mean, there's just nothing like that left today. Yeah, so yeah. so why, why are we still reading about how things worked in, in business in 1938 when we read Two Employers? It's just that could be seriously updated and be much, much, much more helpful. I talked to friends one time who talked about updating the book and rewriting all those chapters and calling it in other words. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting suggestion. I liken it to grade five math. The principles of grade five math haven't changed since 1939, really. But every five years, they change the book so it speaks to a, a, the current generation. They find better ways of saying it. Yeah. More relevant examples. Yeah. And, and so if you, we want to call it a textbook, then we should treat it like a textbook. And if we want to accept that it's a religious text, then we can leave it alone. But we don't seem to want to do both of those things. <laughs> I think even rewriting it as a religious text would be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> a step in the right direction. I mean, because we're locked. Mm -hmm. we're, yeah. we're fro we are frozen. Yeah. We are frozen. And, you know, people point to the book uh, all the time. They're quoting this and they're quoting that. And you know what? There's some fabulous stuff in that book. There is some brilliant, fabulous, and tremendously helpful stuff in that book. I, I don't I deny that at all. I even think there's, there's some really good stuff in the 12 and 12, a book that I really have serious trouble with. We just can't be locked in, in uh, pre-1960s verbiage and culture and religion. We just can't be if we're going to survive to 2100. As well as people that don't get the credit they're due, there were other influences. Again, he wasn't writing the book like a historian. He wasn't writing it like a scholar. Like the Oxford group doesn't get the credit it's due. Peabody's common sense of drinking doesn't get the credit. Like he plagiarizes it mm -hmm. without any sort of uh, referential notes or anything like that. Uh, what else was sort of in the wheelhouse at the time in terms of you know, stuff that was being read in the New York meetings. I, I, I really stayed away from that. There wasn't any documentation about it other than the fact that they were reading the, the New Testament. Mm -hmm. They would read the New Testament at the beginning of meetings, both in New York and, and Ohio in the early days. Um, but other than that, there's no specific reference to readings. And, you know, there's this, it, it's like a huge cottage industry among AA historians about, you know, did the Emanuel movement out of Boston in the early 1900s, mm -hmm. they said this and that went through this person and it ended up, and that's where Bill got that from. And then all these backstory influences, I realized early on that if I even started to go there, it was a black hole. I was never going to get out of it. It wouldn't have been a 600-page textbook. It would have been a 1,200-page textbook. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just not not going there. It's I, I was early on, uh, I was out in uh, Akron at the archive, and uh, uh, the archivist said to me over lunch one day, she said, well, you are going to talk about the four absolutes and how important they are to the, the book, you know? And I, 
I paused and I kind of shook my head and I said, no, no, Gail, I'm, I'm not doing that at all. I am not going to go back into that. That I'm, I'm really just going to stick with this 18-month period. There's more yeah. than enough material here yeah. without me wandering off into other stuff. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This has never been done. Mm -hmm. I don't know why nobody's ever gone down to the archive and put all this stuff together into a credible, comprehensive story, but it's never been done. So that's enough project for me. Can you see this as a movie or a play? Because it kind of reads like a script. Yeah, you could say so. Uh, when we were doing contract negotiations for the publication of the books, one of the things that was in there was that they were going to share in the movie, movie rights, should there be any. And I changed that so that I have the movie rights to this. <laughs> because I most especially, I, I think Bill and Hank running around New York and, and Virginia and Maryland and, doing, and Ohio doing the things they were doing in that 18-month period, I think it's worthy of, 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 a, of a movie script. I think it would make a great movie. Yes. Uh, and you uh, invite or challenge uh, other historically minded people to pick up on the story of Hank P and tell that story because like it was a little bit outside your uh, lane, right? And you didn't want to go there, but y you felt like it needs to be done, right? A absolutely. There's no, there's no biography of Hank Parker. Most people don't even know who he is. Most people don't even know he existed. He's part of the story, although Bill Wilson mentions him a couple of times and he comes of age. I've got some information on his time before he got sober that's in mm -hmm. the book. And I've got some information on after the book comes out when Hank's drinking again. Mm -hmm. But Hank Harkness is one of the most interesting and important people, clearly one of the most important people of this whole process. He needs, he needs definitely, definitely to be covered. What we need is people who are going to do this not based on anecdote, but based on primary documents, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm worried there are going to be a bunch of fundamentally fundamentalist-minded people that are going to have problems with this book <laughs> uh, because it challenges so many. I mean, the first chapter is called Challenging the Creation Myths, and the next 30 chapters do it again and again and again and again. That's exactly what's going on in this book. Well, we but, brought you a sweatshirt with a target on, <laughs> on the back. <laughs> but I, I, I was, somebody on, uh, on the Yahoo History Lovers board, when I announced the fact that the book was coming, said, is this a well-documented book? <laughs> and I went and, and counted. Now, in the back of the book, there are citations, like where did I get that fact or where did I get that quote? Mm -hmm. They're just pure citations. There's 1,570 citations in the back, and there's 416 footnotes at the bottom of the page, which have additional information and frequently a citation. So there's almost 2,000 references in the book. If you don't believe what I've said in the book or what I'm quoting in the book or the facts that I'm reporting in the book, go find a different document that contradicts it. I'm on board with that. We need to get back to primary document research. We need to get off this quoting Bill Wilson thing that this is what happened, because it isn't what happened. Mm -hmm. It makes a good story. If you're trying to tell an inspirational story, tell that story. But if you're trying to tell a historically accurate story, go back to the archives and look at the pieces of paper that are there. One of my experiences with your book is understanding that a vision for you was written before there were 12 steps. Yeah. What's he writing about? A fellowship. He's writing about a fellowship completely. Hank Parkers had really pushed him hard that he thought, Hank thought the book should open up with a history of what they had done. And uh, Wilson sidestepped that and didn't do it and sidestepped it and sidestepped it. When he gets to writing 
uh, A Vision for You, which was, the, I believe, the last chapter written before chapters 5 and 6. Yeah. Um, he, he, he actually does a history, of, and, and he gives Akron credit. You know, it's mm -hmm. really, it, 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 it's the Akron story that's mm -hmm. in A Vision for You. He does mm -hmm. a little drive-by on New York. The same kind of things happened in New York. I mean, yeah. I think there's two paragraphs or three paragraphs on that. It's all about Akron. So in one way, he was really, it's a politically written chapter. Mm -hmm. He's trying to assuage uh, the, the people negativity. People who told him not to write the book. <laughs> people who told him it was a bad idea to write the book. People who told him they wouldn't have a damn thing to do with that book because they didn't think it was a good idea. Yeah. And they didn't do that. You know, Bob, Bob, it was like pulling teeth for Bob to get those stories. Mm -hmm. it was, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no one wanted to write them. And even A, number three refused to have his story in the first uh, version of the big book. Unless he was paid. Yeah, that's right. He could see that, you know, this isn't this isn't charity. <laughs> AA number three, not in the book. Yeah. The guy who went to Chicago, uh, is that Earl Treat? No, Earl Treat was Detroit. Whoever went to Chicago and started AA up there, wouldn't that have been a great story that, that, that it could migrate to a major city and be mm -hmm. successful? His story is not in the first edition. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's just an amazing thing how... Um, how recalcitrant and negative the people in uh, in Akron and uh, Cleveland were about this whole book project. You know, they and talk about reconfiguring history. Here's one of these repackaging deals. Dr. Bob um, got a, a, an old newspaper man sober, Jim Scott, mm -hmm. and 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 he, the guys were having trouble writing their stories. So he had Jim Scott help him write the stories. You know, that's what he did. So that's kind of how the story gets told, as if these guys wanted to write their stories. Yeah. But they just needed a little help to polish it up because they weren't writers, you know. Yeah. Fact of the matter was, Bill Wilson's got all this heat on Bob Smith to come up with these stories. And the guys in Akron are saying, aside from a couple of them, are saying, I'm not writing. I'm, I'm not doing that. So Bob gets this guy sober. And he sends them over to have coffee with these guys one at a time and, yeah. and talk to them and get the story out of them. He goes back and he writes a story. From Jim's got memory to, of the discussion. Of the discussion. Yeah. That's, that's how In the stories person. got written. So <laughs> is, is that the same thing as this sainted story that's told about how, you know, yeah. Jim just helped these guys? Yeah, no, yeah. no. Bob was freaking desperate. He was just desperate to get these things done. And he finally found a way to get it done. Having so luridly illustrated the problem, Wilson is only slightly less effusive in his presentation of the wonderful solution he claimed to be so close at hand. And this is the quote. Yes, there is a substitute, and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. And then I comment, in a nutshell, this is the promised quote-unquote vision that Bill is offering to the new man. A meaningful life lived within a growing community of sober men, free from boredom, care, and worry. A life that will prove to be not just exciting, but truly richer and more satisfying than anything the Reformed drunk has ever experienced before. And that changed for me, the significance of that, when I learned that he wrote that before he wrote the 12 steps. Oh, amen. Sure. What was going on here? We're staying sober together. That's, yeah. that's the deal. Whatever else is happening. It's the eyeball to eyeball effect. Yeah. yeah. One drunk talking to another. Yeah. And, and the hope of the book was the book could do 
what the eyeball eyeball and and it has right people have been sent the book and got sober on the book that story you know one of the things that uh, I was asked the other day uh, about Lois's diary contribution mm-hmm and uh, there's there's wonderful wonderful stuff. I I could I could do a bit on Lois's diary, but but the, the entry that always jumps out at me that is in the middle of June. She says, uh, Bill left. They, they had a fight of some sort. Mm-hmm. Bill left and went out to drink, and rather than drinking, he went over to Hank Parker's house. Rather than drinking, he went to Hank Parker's house. So we're having a marital, huge marital dispute, so much so that the husband storms out of the house. He's going to go to the bar and drink. Can you imagine if Bill Wilson drank in June of 1938? You and I would not be sitting here having this conversation. We would not be sitting here. So uh, what was Bill's solution? Did he, did, he go to, did, he, did he go to the church? Did he go to Sam Shoemaker? Did he, did he, uh, did he you know, go off and spend... Uh, a uh, half hour in quiet time to calm down? No. He went to his best bud in New York, the other guy who had been sober the longest in New York, Hank Parkhurst. Right. I, would, I would love to know what that conversation, to have been a fly on the wall that day at Parkhurst's house would have been worth a, worth a small fortune to me. That's just, just amazing. And I always wonder <clears throat> if at the next Tuesday night meeting, Bill talked about how thirsty he had been and how close he came to a drink. I'm not sure that he did, but I'm, I'd be very—I'd like to be a fly on the wall at that meeting, also, huh? Yeah, who wouldn't? Yeah. Uh, I mean, two things about uh, Hank. Um, one is he's responsible for the outline of the book, largely, right? Which, he literally uh, wrote an outline for this book, yeah. which, which again is—I actually found the editors. He did, yeah. and he worked with them. He was yeah. he was he was the one doing that. He and um, he wrote a chapter that never made it. The Q and A chapter, yes. But now we have forty four questions about Alcoholics Anonymous. Like we've done it, like in, like it exists in AA today, right? Right. AA as a whole said, yeah, we need that, even though Bill Wilson, contrary to his, we all wrote the big book. He, he put the brakes on that. Uh, Q&A thing. Yeah, he wouldn't let the Q&A chapter go in. And if you read the Q&A chapter, it's in, I printed in full in one of the appendices yeah. of the book. Uh, it's very obvious why he didn't do that. It's I mean, aside, aside from the fact yeah. that it's a number one, it's a completely personal thing. Yeah. Uh, number two, Hank was just a dreadful writer and it's, it's so crazy <laughs> organized and trying to make any kind of sense out of it as you read it. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, when, when, when I talk about it in the book, I, I, I break it down into you know, discrete different topics because he'll talk about topic A in paragraph 13 and paragraph 26. And, you know, just mm-hmm. I had to put them together to make sense out of what mm-hmm. was the guy trying to tell me. Yeah. But, but no, Bill was, Bill was it, you know, I hadn't really thought about it uh, in the sense that most especially the biggest objection to that was it was one man's story. But it wasn't in the story section in the back. It was supposed to go in the expositional stuff up front and it didn't belong there because it was personal on that level other and you know in the beginning bill's story was in the back yeah it, that's it, right he was it, it was the, all the personal stuff yeah. was in the back and there was going to be this expositional stuff and the first chapter was going to be there is a solution mm-hmm. uh it was tom usel the the uh, the first editor that they hired who moved wilson's story up to the front he said you need that you need that that impact right away uh, if you're going to get a drunk going, you need to give him something to believe in that, like, oh, this this actually happened to this guy, and this guy actually stopped drinking? Really? Really? You know? Rather than going right into the theoretical stuff. Now, maybe you can riff on this a little bit, because, I mean, 
who knows, but it took, you know, they printed the book. It wasn't a bestseller <laughs> coming, out of the, uh, coming off the printing press. I came to AA, and it was the mid-70s, and AA hadn't sold a million copies of the big book yet. And when that happened, that was a big deal, right? They made a big deal of it. And then very shortly thereafter, the, now he's dead and gone. So we just have the, you know, the... Icon. Of, yeah, icon, right? Now we're selling a million copies every year, right? In his lifetime, he didn't get to enjoy the spoils of his efforts, right? But it, it just be... And it becomes this situation where when uh, Lisa comes to the program, it, the... The AA is the big book, is the steps, is AA, but that wasn't always that way. How, how did we get to uh, a book, to sort of the, the zealotry that we, we seem to... And if you think I'm misrepresenting that, uh, you can call bullshit, but, but there, there seems to be this, well, you can't have a meeting without reading from the big book, or that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't really know where all of that comes from, but there's different AA cultures all over the all over the country that I've been to, even all over the world. I've been to meetings outside of the country, and I don't just know how those things develop. But you know, I was just out in um, California doing a presentation at the South Bay Roundup, and all the, yeah. all the speakers at the South Bay Roundup were very heavy on their emphasis on God. Mm -hmm. Really, really, uh, to the point that I was shocked. Yeah, because the culture in 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 Fairfield, Connecticut, is not like that at all. Yeah. The culture in Fairfield, Connecticut, uh, is is much more liberal, much more open, much more coded, if you will. Mm -hmm. When people talk about whatever spiritual uh, entity they might be working with, mm -hmm. lately uh, we started going to a, a meditation meeting down in uh, Westport, uh, the town next door, and there's a lot more God talk there than you get in Fairfield meetings. So, what's it's very, a is very regional that what, way. What's that all about? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't I don't really know. Uh, yeah, the, it seems to me this idea that we have to read uh, the first uh, two and a half pages of chapter five at every meeting, and if you're going to four or five meetings a week, it just turns into blah 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 blah. Uh, I've been in meetings like that where people just they just skip the first ten minutes of the meeting because it's the same stuff being read every week. Yeah, show up ten minutes late. Yeah, and, just and get to them. Just just do, the, do the deal. Uh, so why are we yeah. doing that? You know, and uh, I. I, I I don't know. AA is a mystery. It is a mystery, yeah. and I'm I'm happy that it's a mystery. Yeah. But but I, I, as long as we keep evolving, and I'm hoping this book is going to be at least a small element in uh, in uh, the way AA is going to evolve over the next twenty or thirty years. Hopefully. Do you dare have hopes or expectations for uh, this book? I do. I hope it's going to open the conversation up. We need we, just, we need to start talking about opening up. And whether you like this book or not, whether you rail against the hip, the uh, heresy of it, uh, and I'm sure there are people who are going to do that. Um, I think it's going to it's going to start conversations, and we we need we need to start talking about this stuff. We really do. We need to get to a place where we can. Uh, survive. I mean, the, the longer the longer 
we go, the time distance more from 1939 when that book was first published, the more incomprehensible it is to people, the less relevant it is to people. And, uh, and it shows. AA in the United States has more um, meetings uh, in 2019 than it did in 2000. In Canada, there are less AA meetings. And in, internationally, there are less AA meetings. There are 15% less in Canada and 30% less internationally. Didn't know that. And because, yeah, it's not the AA you're, you're going to, right? But, yeah, that, you know, I mean, that sort of is a stark uh, fact against your suggestion that if we don't sort of, you know, bring AA back to eyeball to eyeball, one alcoholic talking to another, there is no experts, this isn't, these aren't instructions, you know, explain in your own words, could you? Because in 40 years, I've never had anyone say, what an order, I can't go through with this. But we talk about it like everybody says that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did I leave out? One of the things um, we really didn't talk about was uh, Akron's reluctance. I mean, we touched on it a couple of places, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that Bill was sending chapters out to Ohio with regularity and asking for feedback. And it's interesting, at one point he says, just show it to a few people, because he knew how angry the other people were about the project. Mm -hmm. By the time he gets to the third letter where he's, that we've got in the archives where he's sending things out, he's saying, you need to show this to everybody, because you know, this thing's coming out. And, yeah. you know, we, we, I need some feedback here. So he's begging Dr. Bob for feedback, and he gets back zero. Yeah. He gets back nothing from Ohio. And, and there's two letters where he says, I'm, Bob, I, I'm glad you like the chapters, but I need some feedback here. I need some, you know, give me some input. He said, I'm having a hard time in New York getting input. Now, I think one of the reasons he was having a hard time getting input was that Wilson, for all his protestations, didn't do well with input. He didn't, yeah, he didn't no. do well with people telling him that, that that's the deal. He was, for instance, very, very proud and crowed after the fact that aside from adding as we understand him in the steps and taking on your knees, he claimed the 12 steps were exactly the way he wrote them. And he was really, really proud about that. Yeah. And But he was fighting a rear guard action all the time because people did want him to change those things and he, he refused to do it. And then, you know, they, they take this multilith copy and they send it around to all the members and to... Uh, doctors and psychiatrists, and uh, uh, very famously, uh, a Dr. Howard sends back mm -hmm. huge criticisms of the book and says you got to take all the yous out and put we's in. You can't be telling alcoholics what to do. You need to tell them what you did and explain how it worked for you. That's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And Wilson did not want to make those changes. He did not want to make those changes. I was uh, at the Stepping Stones archive late in my research and I, I stumble on this, this memo that Hank Parkhurst wrote 17 days before the book is published. And he says to Bill Wilson, Bill, you've got to make those changes to Dr. Howard. You've got to do that. We just, you've got to stop. You've got to do that. And let me tell you, Bill, if you don't do it, I'm going to put together a committee of six or eight guys, eight, eight or ten guys. He, he lists the guys he's going to get on the committee. Yeah. I'm going to put together a committee and we're going to make the changes. I mean, it was just this huge power play by Hank Parkers mm -hmm. to get what he wanted done in the book. 
And Wilson Wilson made the changes. They yeah. didn't, they, of course, they didn't have time for a committee. It was 17 days later. The yeah. book was out. Yeah. But it was just before they took the manuscript up to Cornwell Press to do it. Yeah. And I think I think that's 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 just amazing. And it shows how 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 resistant Bill Wilson was to anybody messing with anything he'd written. I know exactly how this works. I write stuff, I bring it over to my wife, the lady Sarah, and she starts marking things up. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, that was yeah. perfect the yeah, way I had yeah, it. Yeah. But, 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 I may bitch and moan, but I go back and I make the changes she suggested yeah. because she's a fabulous editor. Yeah, and, yeah. And she has been through both of my books. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that sort of thing. But Wilson, you know, he has, he's like, oh, we all got together and we, you know, we talked about it and we argued about it and we made, you know, we, till everybody was happy with it and like, pfft, not even close, Bill. Yeah. Not even close. Yeah. And that's the idea. Everyone has this picture of the, uh, that copy of the big book with all the red marks on chapter five, right? Yeah. yeah. And assuming that, Every chapter they sat down and that process was going through, and it's just, that's not... But of course, those were, the, the one you're talking about is, is what they call the printer's copy. It wasn't yeah. really the printer's copy, but the one that's been auctioned off three times now. Yeah. Uh, uh, and is supposedly going to be on display at GSO at some point. I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. But, uh, you know, that was a collection of all the suggestions that were given after the multilith printing was out and people mm -hmm. could read it. I think one of the most fascinating things about that document is to look at it and not to see what got written in that got accepted, mm -hmm. but the stuff that was suggested that didn't get accepted. Yeah, there's did. some there's some yeah. wonderful, wonderful things, even just on those two and a half pages of chapter five that get written uh, in the meeting all the time. The, the, uh, the uh, suggested changes that weren't taken are, are just, just really, really fascinating to me. And it's a tremendous way, it's a snapshot right into... February, March of 1939 on the development of one of the most important spiritual movements of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a gift of the gods. Yeah, and, and that is, uh, I mean, the Lasker Award recognized that. Uh, Time Magazine recognized that at the turn of the century. The uh, Library of Congress recognized the book Alcoholics Anonymous as one of the 88 books that shaped American... I, I mean, that's, that's not us tooting our own horn. No. Uh, yeah, and you know, whatever they're at now, forty million copies sold or fifty million copies sold. I mean, that's that's a that's a short list of books that <laughs> enjoy that sort of uh, pedigree. And, and if I can, I'd like to mention one other um, personage. Who oh, gets, you can. <laughs> who gets who gets dropped out of the story? Everybody talks about this guy, Tom Usel, who was the yeah. editor of the book. He was the editor of the book. And they do that based on a letter that Hank Parkhurst wrote in early January of 1939. So I'm doing the research, and I find a letter of Hank Parkhurst writes to a woman named Janet Blair. Mm -hmm. Another Janet woman Blair. being rewritten out of history. Completely. She got completely written out of history. And he, so he hires, he doesn't hire one editor, he hires two editors. He hires Usel, and Usel, as I understand it, was doing the big picture stuff. He was the guy who looked mm -hmm. at the whole manuscript and said, Bill, you need to put your story up front for this thing to be more effective. And, mm -hmm. and so he, he did that kind of stuff with the manuscript. Janet Blair, on the other hand, did the paragraph by paragraph changes mm -hmm. and, and mojos on, on, on the manuscript. And there's letters back and forth between 
between Janet Blair and Hank Parkhurst. There's a letter from Janet Blair to Bill Wilson about what's going in the book. Unfortunately, a lot of times the, the she says, you know, attached is the blah, 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 and there's nothing attached. So oh, okay. it's really hard to know exactly what she's talking about. At one point, she talks about a whole bunch of stuff she's taken out of... Uh, one of the chapters, I don't remember which chapter it was off the top of my head. It's in the book. Read the mm -hmm. book. Uh, <laughs> uh, but she, 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 uh, she had taken some stuff out, you know, and I could not for the life of me figure out where, what it was she had taken out and where she'd taken mm -hmm. it out of and how she'd mojoed it. But, but so here's this woman who's actually, she's doing the edits on the book, you know. Has anybody ever heard? I had never heard of Janet Blair. I don't know anybody who'd ever heard you of Janet first, Blair. You brought her to my attention in this book yeah Janet Blair edited that book yeah that's right so, but she was a woman so you know yeah. she was like this guy's secretary I mean who cares we don't care about that yeah. you know Tom Tom's yeah. a guy yeah like a he god is fine <laughs> <laughs> um the lost ark what's missing that you would really love to find like substantial factual accounts of, of something that we're just left to speculate on Two prime examples. There's a ton of things where there's blank spots. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a blank spot. So I've got to take the version Bill Wilson said in 1955 because that's the only thing I got for this. Mm -hmm. And we do that. I mean, you know, it's not like Bill was lying all the time or making yeah. up myths and parables all the time. He was frequently talking about what really happened. Mm -hmm. And I can accept that. But Lois's diary, when in October of 19. 37, they go to Akron. Bill tells a story. He goes to Akron and he sits around with Dr. Bob and Ann and they count noses and they've got 40 people and they weep in joy that the, the, what had God has wrought. And then they, they have a meeting and Bill says, oh, we, we need to have a book and we need paid missionaries and we need hospitals. And Bob calls a meeting and they vote by the slimmest majority that Bill should go back and raise the money and do those things. That's Bill's version of the story. Lois Lois's diary is just unbelievable. You know, she's got the day before she goes on the trip. Mm -hmm. Oh, and a whole bunch of New York guys go up on the trip. It wasn't just Bill Wilson up there. And she says, you know, uh, Bill Rudell, who lived in, in New Jersey, mm -hmm. Bill Rudell and his wife, they're recently sober, pick us up at 11 o'clock and we drive up and we stay. I mean, there's this tremendous amount of detail, uh, which isn't common in her 1937 diary. Yeah. And we stopped and we picked up Fitz Mayo, who had taken the train up. And then we all went up there and we did this. And then there's five days while they're in Akron, Ohio, having this counting noses meeting that have been torn out of the, the, the diary. Torn out of the diary. There's 72 pages missing from the 1937 diary. No other diary of hers has torn out pages, but the 37 diary has 70 plus pages torn out. And the most important ones are these like four or five or six days that they were up in Akron. And then after that torn, uh, torn out pages end, there's a big entry about, and, you know, Sterling Parker and his wife drove us back, and we went to New Jersey, and we had breakfast at Charles, and then we got on the subway and went home, and all kinds of, I don't know what happened in Akron. I want to know what happened in Akron, and there's just, there's just nothing. There's the, and, and nothing in the Akron. Uh, no, 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 there's nothing. But I mean, so what, what, I, I, now we're pure speculation. Did, did the written diary account contradict the story that her husband had been telling for years and years and years, so she got rid of it? Or did it, was, was she bad-mouthing Ann Smith or Bob or, or, or something? Who knows? I mean, I just don't know. I don't know what, I don't know. She tore those pages out. Tore those pages out. So that's, that's one black, I would, I would, I would. Or somebody, or somebody did. did. Somebody. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. Well, she, when she submitted the, I, I checked with the GSO archive, and when she submitted the, 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 the type manuscript 
she admitted Lois was still alive, that those pages had, had been torn out, that they were missing. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it had happened, it didn't happen after she died, for instance, you know, it, yeah. it happened mm-hmm. before she died. The, the, other, the other black hole that I would love to have been a fly on the wall for um, was that in, uh, in January, early January of 1939, Hank Parker's wife threw him out. Mm-hmm. And he, he, moves in, he moves in with Bill Wilson for yeah. 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. He's living in Brooklyn for 10 weeks. So rather than there being a paper trail between these two guys going back and forth, mm-hmm. because Bill was in Brooklyn and Hank was way up in New right, Jersey and they right. were meeting in the, in the middle ground in Newark, so they were doing that kind of stuff, there was paper trail before that. 10 weeks probably the most important 10 weeks about the whole manuscript finally coming together. Mm-hmm. It had just been handed off to the editor. Mm-hmm. Those 10 weeks, we got nothing because those guys are sitting around the dining room table talking every day. Yeah, They're living in each other's back pocket for 10 yeah. solid weeks mm-hmm. while, the, while the final manuscript is being decided on. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Researchers, you've got your mission. <laughs> you've got your marching orders. <laughs> For people who are either commercially or culturally inclined, uh, this book will be out just in time for Christmas, and it makes a great gift for the nerd on your uh, list, right? The only thing I can add to what you said is you haven't given it all away. There is so much more in there, and I encourage anybody who cares about AA, has an opinion about AA, to read this. And as you have invited them, if they disagree, they can go do their research and you'll be the first person to go, you know, you're right. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) And we wish they'd written a chapter on failures. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. God, would I love to see that. Oh yeah, that's exactly right. Chapter on failures. What a damning title. We all kept chatting, but I'll leave it there. You've been very patient. Thanks, Sarah and Bill, for having us in your home. Victory has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. First said by Count Galizo Chiano, 1942. Uh, Thanks for that quote from Don, currently the general service rep at the Queen Street West Tuesday Secular Nooner. Area 83, District 12, for those of you keeping score at home. I was sharing my blow-by-blow about uh, what I learned about, like what I do with my own backstory, I'm sure, the way that the events of how they unfolded and how they were told many, many years later tend to differ. If the big book had flopped, its creator would have been an orphan, but instead it caught on and enjoys many fathers, or as Count uh, Chiano would say today, uh, many parents. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Visit rebelliondogspublishing.com for a link to a William Shaber interview on thefix.com, links to writing the big book, The Creation of AA, and other show notes. The book is available now from your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore from Amazon, directly from the publisher, You Do You Your Way. We'll have links on our site if you want to just sort of connect there. As always, share this episode as you see fit. Have your say on Facebook, Twitter. We're there because you're there. 
or news at rebelliondogspublishing.com. Thanks for spending some time with us.